The Press Box is here to catch you up on the latest media stories. Hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, these guys have the insight on the biggest stories you care about. Check out The Press Box on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line the Baron Harkonnen of content. It's Andy Greenwald! It's you joke, but I've always considered myself to be a fat slug-like being floating above <laughs> the scrum, you know, and just just delivering my opinions, my orders, and generally being feared and respected. Oh, Andy, it's great to see you, man. Uh, I'm still recording from Philadelphia. Andy's in California. It's uh, Wednesday when we were recording. This is going up Thursday. We're going to talk a little bit about Dune, which I also chatted about with Sean and Amanda on The Big Pick. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what we do in the shadows and maybe a little bit about Curb Your Enthusiasm. All the, all the funnies coming out today. Chris, you missed, I don't want, I mean, I don't want to step on our, our treasure trove of content, but Let it rip. you're missing a lot of epiphenomenal events out here. You know, so far you've missed, you missed an earthquake. Uh-huh. Uh, you missed rain, which is more uncommon than earthquakes. Do you have FOMO? Do you have California natural event FOMO right now? It's just slate gray here in Philadelphia, like absolutely Oof. dead concrete slate gray. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, I can't. I so can't. it's been it's been cool. Like I've enjoyed it. And it's been uh, that like late. It's like that fall East Coast weather where it's like some days it's 68 and some days it's 48. But it is it's funny. It's like I do think that California has gotten into my uh, into my sort of like emotional balance beam because like now I'm mm. like, oh, man, like I haven't seen like pure sun in a couple of. A days and it it is it is get gets to you. I, I may have said this at, a, at at an earlier point in our podcast history, like maybe a year or so after moving to California. But it does affect you. It does change you in a lot of ways. And there was one year, maybe it was the first year back or the second year back, when I came back to Philly for Thanksgiving, and I was driving on ninety five, and I looked around, and something occurred to me, which is that every single thing in my field of vision was the color of the Ben Franklin Bridge. <laughs> Everything was kind of this washed out deathly slate gray indigo like the yeah. cloudy sky was that color the river was that color the toyota tercel clogging up the the passing lane was that color and i was like i i i really felt lawrence fishburne as morpheus voice in my head being like what is what is wrong with my eye how have my eyes changed and he was like well prior to moving to california you'd never use them before <laughs> your entire your entire experience was the same monochrome. And I think that gets to you after a while. I, uh, you know, with with obviously all the love and the respect in the world uh, to my mother, I've been hanging out with her for a week and I just needed to like, just get a little juice going. So I went to a bar by mm. myself on Monday night. Good for you. You know, I just really wanted to see Geno Smith uh, play against, uh, mm. <laughs> against You're James passionate. That was Chris, like, you love QB play. That's yeah. the one thing that doesn't come well, out actually, about you enough. Because I couldn't watch Manning cast because it was on at this bar. So I go to the bar and I'm like, I got to get off my phone. I got to get out of the discourse. Mm-hmm. I just want to mm-hmm. go and hang out with like just some lunch pail kids and just, and just throw back some Guinness and watch the Saints. And like within five minutes, I was in the middle of a mandatory vaccination conversation <laughs> at this bar. Were you really? I, I didn't start it. I was just like lo- trying to look at my phone and just trying to like watch TV and like just it, these two people started talking over me and then started pulling me into it. Were, lot, were you like, of, what were, do you like, think? Like, what's your status, bro? Is that did you talk about that? Did you tell them that you were J and J gang one and done? How'd they feel about that? <laughs> they were they admired my uh, my commitment to my own my own uh, my antibody production. 
I, I think the thing um, that I do envy about your your travel right now um, is that nothing is better than being in Philadelphia when the sports teams are playing the way they're playing right now. They're you know, there great. is they're doing it great. Is, it has got to be electric. You know yeah. what I mean? Just like nothing but posy vibes up and down the Ben Franklin Parkway. I just it, that's really exciting. So the Braves are in the World Series. That sucks for Phillies. The football coach of the Eagles thinks he's Ted Lasso. And even though this team fucking sucks, it's just like we're all about dog culture. And it's like the ground under the soil. And it's all the fertilizer. And then the Sixers like got their asses kicked by the Knicks last night. And Joel Embiid looks older than I do. So it's uh, it's all going great. But I want to talk about Dune. Because this is one Me of the too. things that um, I think has been one of the most uh, refreshingly, enthusiastically received pieces of pop culture in a while. I'm sure that it's got its detractors. I know it's got its detractors. That's totally cool. But it's been really like a little bit of... Um, it's been booing to kind of have have this this new thing in the world to be able to talk about, to see people really excited about it, whether they're watching it on HBO Max or watching it on IMAX. And uh, I wanted to hear from you, man. I wanted to hear what you thought of the movie. Yeah, I mean, look, I called Zogby. I called all my most dependable pollsters. And I got to tell you, Chris, the, the, approval, gang? Yeah. The, approval, the approval rating. Well, as a New Mexico guy, I, I go with Gallup. Okay. Um, the approval rating on this thing is sky high. And to your point, it feels great. I don't remember the last time this happened. And everyone listening to this podcast knows that I am usually front and center of the cynicism brigade. Yeah, okay? you're the number one boy when it comes my, to, I'm glad other people are happy. My birthstone is jaded. That is who I am. And yet, did you have, and that, did you have that written yet, down? No, that's off the dome. It is Wednesday in California. Hump day. Get at me. Um, I went into this having seen the David Lynch movie, kind of. I don't really remember it have never really known anything about this world other than the covers of the paperback books in my school library freaked me the F out. Thus, yeah. I never picked them up. Yeah. Uh, Side-eye the people who were true spice heads, never got it. So I came into this with a lot of skepticism and came out of it absolutely tickled and thrilled. I really, really, really loved the movie. Mm -hmm. I loved the experience of watching the movie. I love people loving the movie. And, you know, you think I'm bad. Everyone, I mean, this, this, this town, Chris, you're on the outside now, you know, so you don't remember what it's like, but this is a circular firing squad masquerading as an urban center. Sure. And particularly if you are in or even adjacent to entertainment, people love to create TV shows and movies, but they really love to shit on other people's TV shows yes. and movies. Especially and shitting on ones that might be getting any kind of like momentum yes. going for them. Sure. And yet, this is, my God, this is, I'm going to get called up to the BS report for this. This is this is a Bill Simmons observation, but I was at soccer on Saturday morning talking oh to some God. other parents. Sorry, this is who I am now. And were they all and, in the business or were they professional soccer soccer parents? Well, no, I mean, to my credit and, at, you know, to show the abundance of respect I like to show, there were two groups of chairs gathered in the business and not in the business. <laughs> We self-select. But I was talking to a showrunner and a and an actor-writer. Mm -hmm. And everyone was like, man, guess what I did last night? I watched Dune, and it was great. Everyone was just feeling chipper and excited about loving something, and that was really fun. But obviously, we are Can talking around the... Yeah, yeah, sure. It's quick straw poll of, of the industry. Mm, I got it. Finger on the pulse. Did they watch it at home, or did they go out and see it? I have not met anyone who went out and and saw it, which isn't to say I think people, including myself, you know, saw it in more optimal situations. Like, but but not necessarily. I don't know anyone personally who went to IMAX or even went to a theater. And you saw it in more optimal situations, like with with a sandworm in the building with you, so to, I, to explain sort of what was going through his his process. My eyes were so blue uh, <laughs> when I watched it. No, I just mean that like I would like to see it again in mm -hmm. a full full theater. Um, I had really good sound, which is really important for this movie, I think. You know, big screen, et cetera, et cetera. I, not the, did you see this? This came across my feed recently, but do you remember the episode of The Office where um, Michael Scott invites people to his home for a dinner party and he shows off the plasma TV he invested in? Yeah. And it's the size of like a seat back on a, you know, a regional <laughs> spirit air flight. And he's like, sometimes I just stand here and watch TV for hours. It wasn't that. Okay. Um, but 
Well, I mean, I, I don't want to talk too much. We, we can get to talking about the reaction to the thing. I think we should talk a little bit about the movie itself. Can I add um, one more thing to the Michael Scott, y- Scott bit? Y- y- yeah. Do you know what's really funny? Is how much time and energy and quite candidly money our parents' generation put into surround sound. Oh, sure. <laughs> it was cre- a big thing. Into, be- into creating theater-like experiences for their living rooms. Yeah. <laughs> and like... My dad still has, like, my dad's been mm-hmm. not with us for 10 years. The setup of speakers still are, like, dot his mm-hmm. living room of, like, how he was going to try and set it up so that it could feel just like seeing Spartacus for the first time. <laughs> See, because the thing is, and people have heard me say this before, like, I always, this wasn't the, before I met your dad when I just read his reviews, I picture him just just getting the Dolby 4K yeah. lined up just so so you can hear the silverware clatter when Anthony Hopkins puts it away during a crucial moment in Remains of the Day. <laughs> you know? Because yeah. Remains of the Day, for me, is the benchmark four-star Des Ryan review. That was a real schism um, in my father's own relationship because I think he, <laughs> if I remember correctly, he liked that more than uh, Heat. <laughs> yeah, he did. And, yeah. all, you know, frankly, in 1995... So did your young compatriot over that here, Wu-Tang like, Forever. No, Dad, I mean, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you were saying. <laughs> Which one of these movies has Val Kilmer in a ponytail, Dad? That's so smart now. Um, well, okay. So here's my big, big, big tent uh, House Atreides take on this. And, and, and I, I've got a, I can come at this a bunch of different ways. But my main thing was that really filled me with glee was, look, this stuff's going to happen. All the genre IP from the last hundred years is going to get turned into mega budget, multi-platform, hydra-like extravaganzas for the theatrical experience or the streaming experience or both, what have you. The studios are going to spend upwards of two, two fifty, three hundred million dollars to make these movies. Dune is a reason why you should do it, because if you're gonna do it, go as big as possible, go as weird as possible, and spend the money in the right places. Abu which, Dhabi. to my mind, yeah, is <laughs> it's Abu Dhabi. <laughs> this podcast brought to you by the royal family of. Um, it's hire the very, very best people. Just have a knockout starting 11 and pour everything else into production design and sound design and really, really give the artists in all the fields all the tools they need to play. And you're going to get something that's really rewarding. You know, you're going to get something that is worth the time, worth the investment in all senses. And I'm, I'm, I, I am usually not this optimistic or, or chipper about any, anything really, but I was really thrilled that the movie did very well at the box office. I was so excited to see that the response has been so positive in both a critical and financial and audience success that the sequel has been greenlit because it is an audacious bet to begin with to do all of this and have it be fucking part one. I think that this movie was always going to be. I, I and Sean and me and Amanda talked about, but like, I guess it didn't say part one when they saw the movie in initial screenings. It just said Dune. I think that this was always going to be a two part film. I just think it was about negotiating for whether or not it was going to be a day and date on a streaming service the next time around, and whether or not they could use the leverage of like, well, we'd like to come back and do it, but underneath there was like, never again will this movie be available on laptops the day it also was available on IMAX. I, I also saw something that I had not realized, and, and and you and I are not nearly as literate with the art, more arcane budget stuff as we pretend to be sometimes. But I did not realize that Legendary, the which is an independent studio mm-hmm. behind a lot of big budget stuff, just straight up paid out the pocket 70% of the um, production costs of Dune. And we're prepared, and we're, the arrangement was that they would do it again. So it actually isn't a Warner Brothers decision. Sure, it was a legendary right. decision to pony up the cash in partnership with Warner Brothers in exchange. And I guess for blah, you know, blah, given blah. given what happened with Last Duel and a couple of other things, they probably were like, let's just make sure, like one hundred percent, that we didn't just lose half a billion dollars in the making and marketing of this movie. Because one thing I will say about Dune that I guess you couldn't really say about Last Duel, for instance, is that mm-hmm. they have been advertising Dune on NBA commercials for two months now. You know what I mean? Like, you couldn't oh God, really yeah. escape the reality of this movie coming out and the enormity of the movie. I, 
the amount of money actually spent, I, I can't imagine. Because I think that they're claiming the budget was like 180 million or something, but this was a $300 million spend, as they say. Oh, and it God, could be I can't even imagine. That with marketing. So, so you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about was like, you know, it's been so f- awesome to see so many different people like this movie for so many different ways. And when something like that happens, whether it's Game of Thrones or whether it's, um, I don't know, late period Breaking Bad is that became like a real cultural phenomenon and people were going as Walt and Jesse to Halloween and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But when you see something like this, I'm try- I was trying to think about like, what is it that makes uh, a phenomenon like this that also has both critical and just like general goodwill behind it Beyond like we need to save movies or beyond, you know, I just generally like Denny Villeneuve's movies. I wanted to kind of like unpack what mm-hmm. it is that that happens here. And I was reminded of, a, of a, an exhibit I saw. I think, I can't quite remember whether or not it was in Chicago or somewhere else, but I saw an exhibit of, of a bunch of, it was a Stanley Kubrick exhibit at an art museum. Oh yeah, I remember when that was going around, yeah. Yeah, and um, they had a bunch of like props from the movies, a bunch of his notes, some screenplays, and what you could see in a lot of the work that he did whenever they had um, pages of his scripts or pages of his, pages of his production notes. And especially when they had the library, like Dewey Decimal System style index card shelves, uh, little shelves of all of his notes that he had made for a film about Napoleon that never got made. Mm-hmm. And it was just like cards upon cards upon cards of all this information, all these things that he wanted to do. And you just spoke to the level of obsession. You know, that when this guy Mm -hmm. eventually took on a story so big like Napoleon and made that movie, he could feasibly be called the world's foremost Napoleon expert. Right. And I think it's that combination of boring down deep into a story and deep into a world and becoming the foremost expert on how sand moves and what color the blue eyes are and how people talk and how people descend from the sky when they're like, you know, the, the shock troops are coming out of the spaceship or whatever in, in Dune. And you can see that Villeneuve has an answer for every question. Yes. Has a vision for every image. Yet, made a movie that the most possible amount of people could go see and enjoy. Do you know what I mean? It's that combination of like... It's incredible. Really, really, really hyper-specific artistry with um, a showman's idea of what would blow people's fucking minds when they step into a big movie theater to see this movie. Well, he, I was going to say that I think that he's incredibly unique. There, there are only a couple unicorns, to use a term that became popular in the NBA, to talk about modern movie making. There are only a few people who can get that balance in today's marketplace and make movies at this size, this scale, in this style, while also maintaining any semblance of artistic self. Um, I was going to say his Warner Brothers colleague, but no longer Christopher Nolan, obviously being one of them. And Nolan was very effusive in his praise of this movie. I I think maybe the better way to look at it is this could be, and I I had no idea having not read the book, um, and I definitely expressed skepticism on the pod in the past, this could be the perfect marriage of subject and filmmaker because, you know, and and forgive me, super spice lords, like like all great interactions with something huge and vast that are positive. I like the movie so much, I did more Googling, and now I think I understand a little bit more of the promise and the appeal, and I even have interest in reading the book now, which is a great compliment, I think, to the movie that they made. But Dune, as, a, as an object, mm-hmm. um, as a subject, seems like the perfect mix of absolutely nerded TF out detail of a millennia of culture and civilization, and societal progress, and upheaval, and war, et cetera, et cetera, details upon details upon details. But also, holy shit, I just dropped acid at the planetarium in 1978. Mm-hmm. Poetry, if you want to push it in that direction. And that's what I, that's the line that I thought the movie walked awfully well. It was n- always at eye level in terms of making sure and he took a lot of great artistic pains, I think, to communicate it. You know, that whether it was the, the sort of audio book that Paul is listening to throughout that gives a little bit of a history exposition dump to, you know, little reminders of what characters' relationships are to each other so that we're never fully, fully lost in a sandstorm. Mm-hmm. And yet, knowing that that spine was laid down so well, the movie tripped its balls off at times and did not overly hold our hands. And 
I really hope that it awoken people in the larger movie-going public or movie-homing public or whatever we're calling it. A reminder is sometimes it's cool to get lost. Getting confused, getting yeah. suffused in something is one of the great pleasures of art that isn't, you know, that 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 can be so uplifting and exhilarating and othering and, and what always has gotten us excited. And, and the end of this monologue, if, if it's, it's, if it's within sight was just to say that there is a very, there always is, there still is a very cynical read of the movie, which is just by its very nature, it's not done. It barely stands on its own. You need a second part just to understand what the story was about. And by the way, if you want to know more about the, the sisterhood, that's name isn't at the tip of my tongue. The Benny get ready Jesuit. For the, yes. Get ready for the, um, the Benny and the Jets are it. <laughs> the the uh, get ready for the HBO Max show that's going to explain that to you. And if you want to yeah. know this other sideline, you know, well, you could read the book or you might need to Google it or whatever. Okay, there's a cynical version of it where it's just like this is emblematic of contemporary culture where everything is just one part, one link in the larger chain of someone trying to sell you something. Or you could look at it completely the other way which is every piece of what we came what we understood what our generation understood as fandom was here's the thing might be 3 years before you get another thing or 6 years but there are lunchboxes and novelizations and action figures right. and just stuff you and your friends imagine on the sandbox and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger because you fill in those gaps and i think that what i walked away with happiest about the movie is that while there is plenty of tie-in content I was thrilled to fill in the blanks and to seek out some of that myself in a way that made me feel invested and activated, which is not the way you feel when you go to see part 24 of the MCU phase nine, It, which is, and we love the MCU. We're going to be talking about it next week, I'm sure, but that does not activate me. That is a passive engagement. Can I ask you a question about the story itself of Dune? I was sure. kind of wondering about this. You know, it's no secret you and I are in our 40s. We're like I try to I try to keep it a secret. Yeah, well, we're older guys now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you find yourself approaching these stories because they are ultimately all the same story about mm-hmm. these messianic Dude. space lords? Yeah. <laughs> do you do you find yourself like feeling more less engaged than you did when you were a kid and you saw Star Wars, or even maybe fifteen years ago or ten years ago when you first saw Jon Snow? Or when? Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, I was, I was kind of wondering whether or not, like, watching Dune through the eyes of someone who's lived a little longer changes your relationship to the central myth and at the center of it. Without question. But I think that what I was cheered by was, I mean, well, I, look, I don't mean if, that as a like Leto Atreides no, no. is actually the hero of this movie. I just mean it's, it's interesting to like yeah. watch, like, oh. We're getting another one. Like we, we're getting we another again. boy prince. Yeah. I, I, I was initially resistant to that, but I have to say the the details, the you know, our 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 buddy Matt, who studied our history, like used a word with me when he was talking about it, which was texture. Everything on the screen was textured and considered and lived in. And and that gave me so much to look at and savor. And just little things you hadn't seen before, like the little sign language that Villeneuve added to the film. I guess that's not from the original Dune Mythos. Or um you know, the shields and the way they work and mm-hmm. what things look, the way the ship, the way the spaceships look. Well, it's, like, a, it's a very an- analog movie too. It's because yeah. the, the, there's a whole other plot in Dune about like there was a rise of the computers and then they yeah. were put down and now it's like a non-digital society in a lot of ways. And I, and I, and so I, there was enough to savor that I didn't get hung up on the messianic plot. But then as the movie went on, something emerged that then when I read further about it was sort of confirmed what makes Dune not those other stories is just how much doubt is baked into it. Not just on the part of Paul, who's just like, I don't know if I want any of this, mm-hmm. but on the part of the world, which is like, do we need a Messiah? That mm-hmm. doesn't seem like a good idea. And also that it's not some sort of like natural, oh my God, the son of God has emerged just in time to save us. It's that all these scheming people have been trying to biogenetically engineer a Messiah to right. save them all. And then, also, you know, good old shoe leather, just spreading gossip about him, you know, so that when you get to Arrakis, they're all like, whisper, whisper, we have yeah, a word for this Yeah, they've been preparing the path for him, yeah. All that stuff. So I, I, I think that that was also what emerged as the story went on, that it didn't seem to follow. And again, we don't know the full shape of it because we don't know what Villeneuve is going to do in part two. And if, you know, when part two comes out, they'll be like, oh, guess what? We're going to do all seven books or whatever, They which is in play. The shape of it, the ultimate shape of it is still obscure, but I think that's that, that, central uh, conceit that 
maybe this isn't a good idea mm -hmm. is kind of there in a way that I really appreciate it. Yeah, I think that runs throughout the books in a pretty heavy way. You know, is like the idea that the, once he, and I, I don't think I'm spoiling anything to say that once Paul sort of ascends to the to the role that like the, the prince who was promised kind of role, yeah, like things start to move very quickly for him. <laughs> He's like, oh wait, you know, I didn't really understand that the the sort of enormity of of influence is, that I would have. Is it like is like Beto in that regard? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like Beto. That's that. That's how I found Speaking my way of into the movie. Preparing the path, you were a big Beto path preparer, weren't you? Beto bundler. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. You always that's that's what you think. That you always think that about me, and I'm not going to deny it. Um, what else about it did you want to talk about? I mean, what else? What else jumped out at you? Well, I I think there were, well there were a couple of things that definitely surprised me. Again, like I the the Lynch movie for all its interesting aspects really didn't prepare me for how dense and rich the story must be. And mm -hmm. so there were moments when, in, when watching the movie where I was like, shouldn't this be a TV show? I'm really glad it wasn't. Yeah. I'm really glad because I think that we need as a people to learn how to say less. Right. And, and do more with what little that we well, have. Okay. So let's but, like edit that a little bit. What I said to, I said this to Sean as I was like, or I was asking, would you have preferred, I guess, a movie that like really expanded sort of like the political mm -hmm. bickering that was going on and essentially ended at the Harkonnen attack mm -hmm. and Paul escaping. And that's like the end of the first movie. And mm -hmm. then not, and not have like the sort of middle, that's that sort of like late part of the movie that's him on the run with Jessica yes. and then him walking through the desert. Is, is Sean a spice Lord? Does he, does he, does he go deep in the texts? No, I was asking, but I was just saying, like, if you were going to say, hey, we know we're making three movies out of this, right? right? Like, maybe this can be two hours yeah. and 20 minutes and the next one can be, you know. I mean, that, that, that's, I think, it's, it's, a, it's a much larger argument because clearly corners were cut in terms of timeline and, and story, right? Like the, the Mentats, who are like the human computers played by David Dasmalkian, and mm -hmm. um, I'm sure I butchered that, and Stephen McKinley Henderson, really cool character actors. Villeneuve, just what a great, you know, he's so good at casting. Yeah. Um, we didn't understand what they were doing, really. It was a hint. It was a feint. It was a suggestion. You know, it was a reward for book readers. But there wasn't a ton for us to to pick up there. Duncan Idaho's first sojourn, where he apparently, like, goes full Jane Goodall, like, in the desert. Like, mm -hmm. how much time passed, <laughs> you know? Right. In the movie, it's like 10 minutes. But I guess in 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 the yeah, timeline like of the, the story. Yeah, like, grown up a lot in the time between? Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's fine. I think it's better to be, to, you know, I think brevity is a good thing. I think self-editing is a good thing. I think that the clarity that was gained by the pruning, I think probably helped the momentum and helped lead to a lot of the good feeling that we're talking about. I would much rather an epic, and by this is still a two-hour, 35-minute movie. Oh, yeah. I, I would, didn't think it I would so much way. rather, no, but I would just much rather have this one movie with another one coming wanting more than the alternative. I think that would have been catastrophic. I thought that, uh, you know, and we can get into it, but just like the, into more detail, if there's specific things you want to call out, but just the, the visions of the various cultures and the clothing and the manner of address and fighting and all those little details were so well considered and cool. The cast top to bottom is so great. And it's not just playing with house money, like uh, house Atreides money, or like we'll, we'll get Oscar Isaac just to just be there because yeah. what he, the gravity that he brings and the sensitivity and emotion that he brings and how much elevated, he elevated that part. When you cast a brilliant actor, you can be okay with less screen time because he does more with it. So there are, there are those examples of casting, but you got to give Villeneuve credit too, because this is like all blockbuster cinema at its best, a mixture of high and low. Mm -hmm. And so just brilliant usage rates for Momoa. Or Dave Bautista, you know, like, do you, would you have expected Dave Bautista and Stellan Skarsgård to be sharing the screen? I guess maybe they did in an Avengers movie, but you know what I mean? Like, generally, oh, yeah, their so. CVs yeah. are not the same, but there are different ways to be an effective actor. And Momo and Bautista deserve a lot of the good press that they get because I think they're brilliant physical performers, which is a huge part of it. I mean, they're more than that, but I think yeah. that's something that they bring to it in a really cool way. I do want to talk about, I know everyone came out of this movie feeling the way we felt after the Mission Impossible movies about Rebecca Ferguson, who's awesome. But of all the homework that I had 
thought was maybe required or might be advisable before seeing the movie. You know, I figured maybe some people, of course, said read the books, or maybe there were great essays about the life of Frank Herbert or some of the things that inspired him. I didn't realize what some a people crucial... were like, read the books, and you were like, what else you got? <laughs> yeah, tell me, what you got a pamphlet? <laughs> but what I didn't understand going in was what a crucial text the um, early 2000s episode of Arrested Development called Mother Boy would be. You know, I, that was not something I was prepared for. And I don't know how much of the big picture podcast you devoted to this, but I salute Denis Villeneuve. And maybe maybe this is me as principal Ed Rooney looking at Quebec being like, so that's how it is in that family. Here's the thing. But... I- I know what you're referring to. He didn't to. run from it. When they, he didn't when run they from it. Changed and they sort of give you little stolen peaks across the, over their shoulders yes. at one another. Dune requires a sicko to direct it. Yes. And, and Denis Villeneuve yes. is a fucking sicko. Like if you've seen yeah. any of his Let's movies. Let's remember you know his that. movies. But like that guy is, let me tell you, he was probably never more happy on that set than when he had just like a tub of black goo and had Stone yeah. Skarsgård like swimming in it, which I'm sure you want to get the recipe for for any post run, you know, cool downs you could get. Was it cure? It seemed curative. <laughs> you know what I mean? It like did. he survived. He survived that demon breath. Um, um, but you know what yeah, I mean? I, like I, you need to have like a yeah. little bit of like, and and I think it's like you can't necessarily teach it's, that. That's something that like when you're a kid and they're like, draw what you see, and you draw like blood exploding out of the ground, and they're like, fuck, we gotta check this kid out. Like, but that's also where like the real true yes. like weird visions come from, like that subconscious level. We overrate at this point certain it's not a skill set, it's certain personality types in the director's chair. And right. what's really become paramount, not the studio, but in terms of of success, are these kind of like, you know, long box savants, people who have the mighty Marvel way of storytelling in their bloodstream where they right. understand that, you know, you know, you know, what's superheroes are cool, but you know, what's cool. Like a God butcher who is mm-hmm. the villain in the new Thor movie. And these are the, the Taika's, the James Gunn's. And, and to some degree, this goes back to Tarantino as well, though he's a generation before, but like an Edgar Wright, this is who they are. This is their language that they speak and they should be praised for. It, and they're certainly, you know, well paid for it. What's missing. is a little bit of the freak. Little bit of little little freaky. Yeah. You gotta be freaky to make a movie about fucking worms, yeah. you know, and spice. You gotta do it. And so, yeah, like it's all there in the text, man, from what I understand. Like Lady Jessica, she's not a married woman. You know, she could look anywhere she wants, whether it's dad or son or whatever. 12 years older than her boy. Okay, cool. <laughs> You're in the desert now, man. Whatever. All bets are off. This is Burning Man, but an entire fucking planet. So I love that it went in that direction without going in that direction. And I I think that he knows. It's important. He knows. He knows yes. what, I mean, and, and I think Chalamet, to his credit too, who I thought was great and a great presence and a surprising lead in a movie like this, he knows what he's working with. I think that's what makes him good too. I mean, this is a... He he is naturally a mother boy. I think he lends him his his yeah. gravitas, and you know he's playing a character that, as we've been reminded many times in things written about this, he's supposed supposed to be whatever that means. Fifteen, I think it doesn't matter. He's clearly just a young young fellow um, who is yet to be gifted his first Norelco at his bar mitzvah or whatever. And he, it's a perverse energy to hang one of these movies on, and in a way you. Correct. This, I'm just going to throw this out and you, you tell me why in how many ways that I'm wrong. But yes, we've seen, a, you know, a, a million young white male savior Messiah movies. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's the, the Joseph Campbell there. It's all that. But have we seen such a unlikely one or boyish one since Mark Hamill in the first Star Wars movie? Because Jon Snow is pretty and boyish, but he, you know, he, he, has, what a, about he has a low center of gravity. Tom Holland? Oh, I'm has, not kidding. Yeah, but I don't, I don't, don't want to count. mother boy qualities, right? He has an ant boy, not <laughs> Ant-Man, but like him and Marissa Tomei have a crackling, <laughs> crackling relationship. But do you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it's, there is a little bit of, speaking of Arrested Development and gender swapping it because it's 2021, a little bit of him? Yeah. You know, when everyone's yeah. like, this is this is the Messiah. So I, I like that. I welcome it. I think um, any al- other along the lines of the Denis thing that we were talking about though, with the with the you have to be a little bit weird or you have to be a little bit sick. It's like I I've 
been thinking about a couple of the other blockbusters that have come out around this time. And a lot of them are made by auteurs. You know, I mean, we'll have Eternals next week. We had No Time to Die a couple of weeks ago. And I kind of, I think that this Dune is sort of a proof of concept to let that person cook a little bit. Like, No Time to Die definitely could have used whatever weirdness Carrie Fukunaga held back or had cut out of that movie. Like, a lot of the stuff with Robbie yeah. Malek's character, I think, could have been, like, overemphasized, like, the Carrie kind of creepiness that he puts in True Detective, that he put in Maniac, that he has in his bag. And uh, I thought that that was... I, I, would, I would encourage, to the extent that anybody gives a shit, I would encourage people to, like... If you're going to hire a really cool director to do it, like let them be them a little bit. Try not to sand the edges off too much because I think people respond to it. Yeah, what are they bringing to this material otherwise? You know, I, I, I you know, we said Legendary paid for a lot of this and Warner Brothers has gotten a lot of criticism for the way they handled Jason Kalar, particularly who's the head of, he's now outgoing head of Warner Media for the like the kind of blindsiding his whole creative community by saying we're putting this all day and date. Yeah. But I, I, I think that they deserve a ton of credit for this movie, for the way they handled it, for the way they marketed it, the way they treated it. They didn't sand it, no pun intended, down. You know, that you could cut trailers for this or one sheets that make it seem a lot more familiar. And I don't think they did. I don't think they ran, I don't think they ran from the very things that we're praising. They were like, we took a big giant swing and you know what? We know it's good. Yeah. We know it's good. And that is old fashioned. That is honestly, I mean, Warner Brothers used to be the most artist-friendly studio, you know, decades ago. That was sure. the whole thing. And I think that that might be, this This is definitely me just, these are, I, you can see my my spice eyes blinking over here. Like, I'm definitely all in on it and, and, and tear me down, you or listeners, later. But that's what you got to do. I mean, Warner Brothers isn't, I mean, nobody's, they're not crying poverty. I don't feel bad for them. But they're not Apple. They're not Amazon. They're not Disney. DC isn't Marvel. So they got to make it work. You know, they got to make it work. And I, I personally think one of the best ways to try and make it work is empower your most creative people and take a big fucking swing. Yeah. Because you're spending the money anyway, you know. Right. And now you have, ask me again in six months, but I don't feel exhausted anymore at the thought of a Dune tie-in TV show, which I was rolling my eyes at before I saw the film. No, I know? think if the only problem with something like that is like when you've got somebody like Villeneuve directing it, it's, it's inimitable, inimitable. And so mm -hmm. it's hard to give people that level of uh, thorough visual execution and, and realization of an idea. You know, if it's just like, hey, block shoot this eight episode thing about Lady totally. Jessica and, and everything else. Um, and, and, and anyone else you want to call out as like particularly good or things that maybe... I mean, just shout out to Javier Bardem for two days of work. You know, shout Amazing. out to everyone. <laughs> like I just... The, the cast is really remarkable. Um, I enjoyed... Uh, oh, I will say this. You know, it's like it's been remarked upon that Zendaya is not in this movie very much and that she yep. yet features heavily in sort of the promotional materials for it. And also that uh, she only, I think, was shot like seven days or a couple of days on this on this movie. If you've watched her in Euphoria and if you've seen her in Spider-Man, but I, I would especially say Euphoria. And if you see this, she has that thing, you know, mm -hmm. that we, we could spend hours and hours and hours trying to describe like what a movie star is or what somebody has that is just different and you can't teach. But I don't know. I, I just find her incredibly charismatic and incredibly interesting and even in a limited time being like oh yeah i could see this person is now following this person from their dreams across a desert you know yeah you could make the case that you know contemporary movie making is about the suits not the people wearing them and it's about plug and play or whatever but movie stars are still movie stars and and, and they're not movie stars in the sense of like these are the six most famous people in the world it's just they elevate. We were saying about Oscar Isaac, we said about Zendaya, we say about Javier Bardem, like these, Javier Bardem is one of the best actors in the world. When he walks into the room and spits on the ground, I'm paying attention. Yeah. But it is not slavishly devoted just to star power. The overall conception of this movie that I, that I found really moving and inspiring, and we can credit Villeneuve for this or the team behind him or the team around him or the team that he put together, just there are no plays off. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're just not a single thing didn't have evident thought and consideration in it and like Sharon Duncan Brewster who plays the doctor as soon as she's on screen I'm like tell me more 
I'm so excited you're here. Right. You look, you look awesome. This is great. I'm excited. The great big deaf Harkonnen in the helicopter, or the, you know, the, 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 or the helicopters themselves, these firefly planes. The ornithopters, yeah. Thrilling. Yeah. Or that dude, like, just like the great big guy, like, they didn't just, he didn't sit out that casting session. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, he wanted the guy to look a certain way and menace a certain way. And you can feel that. And and I think that that's ultimately what was, what what's really triumphant about the film is there's a ton of CG in this. And it's thoroughly contemporary in every way. Yeah, but especially it's like the way that said. it's being it's, told. It's seamless. Like, you can't really tell. It, it's 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 handmade. It's anal. It's the movie itself feels analog in that even the digital things were crafted with intention by people who knew what they were doing and were good at their craft. And that was cool. The my only market correction is like I'm ready for the Hans Zimmer decade to to wind to a decade raucous. Yeah, it feels like conclusion. it's been most of our adult lives. It is, but I mean, particularly like ever since he found out that found that coral setting, you know, like <laughs> on on the on the Yamaha, like that. Although, did you see? I didn't know this. There's a great interview with Johnny Marr in Stereo Gum last week. Do you know Johnny Marr plays on these Hans Zimmer soundtracks? No, I didn't. They're mates. John, Johnny Marr is just down to to be in a sesh. Whatever you read, read this interview with the Smiths legend Johnny Marr that's on Stereo Gum, guys, because this guy was a legend when he was 23 and his band broke up, and then he spent the next you know 30 years just being like, "That's interesting." Yeah, right, I'll try that. Why I'll not? Be, then, I'll be in the Killers or the Cribs. Yeah, it, yeah. Or Hans called me. Yeah, Hans called me. So I'm just gonna go lay down some 12 bar blues for a Batman movie or whatever. <laughs> like that's just or Inception. Like that's him. It's cool. Cool way of being. Art, man. It's cool. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season: your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com watch. That's mintmobile.com watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Can we talk briefly about Curb and Shadows before we go? So uh, we don't often talk about sitcoms, even the ones that we love because, or even comedies really, just because after, man, that was so funny. There's just not a ton to add on our end. Curb started its 11th season on Sunday and we are almost at the end of the third season of uh, what we do in the shadows. And, uh, you know, we'll, we're going to do a little bit of some spoilers for what we do in the shadows in this conversation. So if you haven't gotten a chance to see this most recent episode, skip 
skip this part, I guess. I'm going to um, spoil Curb, too, so buckle up. Yeah, skip, skip, Curb spoilers incoming. Um, two really interesting case studies in how to keep things fresh. Curb mm. seemingly kind of like in its 11th season is obviously something that just knows exactly what it is and exactly what it does. And with a couple of uh, metatextual you know, deviances uh, over the course of, of its run is pretty much just like when Larry wants to make a ep- season of TV, he comes up with a couple of plot lines, gets a bunch of his friends together. They have a great time making it. It's hilarious. Everybody's thankful for it. And then they keep it going. Shadows is something a little bit different where it's like one of those things where you're like, you guys were serious about that when they made a, <laughs> a show out of this movie and yet has become one of the most reliably entertaining, funny, hilarious shows on TV. But you can kind of feel Shadows. Not It's not Curb. Like they kind of want other stuff to happen. Even though it, it you know, it, it has a very repeatable, always yeah, amusing charm. It's interesting to get to this end of the third season and, you know, like characters leave shows. It's not a big deal. But like there's almost a feeling of the plot line at the end of the season, which is basically that Nandor, the head vampire, is like, I'm tired of being a vampire. It almost feels a little bit like it's about the show itself. You know, it's like we're so good at making this, but can we do can we make these people into other people almost? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, well, specifically about Shadows, it is odd because the whole thing, it's not slapdash. It's just almost, it's almost insulting how casually brilliant it is and how it just slid in front of us and how it worked. Mm-hmm. You know, it really was, I think it comes down to as simple as Taika and Jemaine Clement, Taika Waititi and Jemaine Clement made the film and they were taking meetings and they were like, maybe we could do that as a comedy series for American TV. And FX was like, okay. Right. And the pitch, from what I understand, from talking to one of the EPs, it was just Seinfeld with vampires. Like, that's what we're going to do. And there's something that is almost transgressive about the first season and a half because it's like they're getting away with something all the time because they found a way to put Mark Berry, one of the great geniuses of British comedy, just on our screens all the time talking about sleeping with... Yeah. I'm sorry, Matt Berry talking about deckhands, you know, sleeping with them in the (laughs) 1700s or whatever. Like, there's no one famous on the show, you know, and it's just... They're brilliant, and it's a credit to everyone involved for making it stand up the way that it did. It also got a little bit of, it got it kind of, I think, started to feel itself because by the first and then into the second season, it was a little bit serialized, mm-hmm. where there were these existential threats to them, and then what was going on with Guillermo, and and then in this third season, and I'm really curious whether it was a decisive stop or a pause, or if it was a COVID thing, but this season has just kind of been like, yeah, we're gonna just gonna do a lot of bathroom humor. We're just gonna oh. have a. We're gonna just. We're gonna be so aggressively stupid, and I say that lovingly. So we're gonna have you know a re reincarnated, two appendaged, uh, crypt keeper vampire lord <laughs> riding around on like a troglodyte ancient vampire, and then a dog like. And then they're going to live in a house together and pretend to be an Airbnb and eat people when they show up. Like it's, it's so, I would say my reaction to it this season, and I still love every episode has been like, they, I think they're still having a very good time. Right. But for me, it's been less of an, like an energetic, like, I can't believe how electric and alive this is. All this is to say, suddenly in this most recent episode, Colin Robinson is dead now. Yeah, after farting for 25 minutes. And dies. then and then Nandor squishes his skull in by accident. And everyone's like, wait, wait, what? And so is he really going to be gone and off the show forever? I have my doubts. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they will do it, but I have my doubts. It, it, I don't know what to say other than like, it. I adore it. I'm so happy with the shows of my life, but it does feel a little weird. Like it, almost as if, to bring it back to your point, in the 90s, they could have just been Seinfeld, and there was no expectation that they're going to learn or grow. But because this is FX and it's the 21st century, we have this expectation, and they kind of pulled it off, and then maybe they're retreating from it. Whereas Curb has found this, is, it, it's it's sui generis at this point, because it literally is Seinfeld, except yeah. just in its own pocket universe, where it's only George, it's only George's point of view, and it's whenever he wants to do it. And so it doesn't have to change. That said, what did you think of the season, of the 11th season premiere? Well, I mean, it's sometimes you just pinch yourself because like they're driving in a car and it's 
Larry David and Albert Brooks and Lucy Liu and Laura Keitlinger. So you're just kind of like, this yeah. is this is just an absurd amount of like talent. I thought it was pretty funny. I, I always find them pretty funny. I think there are like, some episodes feel a little bit like more soft pitch than others. And then some feel like scabrously satirical or like just incredibly incisive and hilarious and have really funny bits. But like, I would honestly watch this show for 10 more seasons. Like I, I yeah, me really, too. Yeah. But, but I watched this episode and like, first of all, I thought our buddy, uh, Sean Fennessy had the best, he tweeted this, right? He was just like, Albert Brooks is just on the show now. It's like Kevin yeah. Durant joining the Warriors. It's like, what? It's so casually one of the great comedic flexes of all time. And just like the whole premise of like he, his introduction is that he's holding his own funeral while he's still alive it's, so that he can hear all the compliments. It's just, it's just phenomenal. But I, I sincerely wonder this. If you're not Jewish, why do you like the show? <laughs> and I mean that with love because it, what I mean is spiritually and culturally, not even yeah. comedically, like sometimes I need to eat matzo ball soup because it makes me feel better, even if it's mediocre. And being around Larry David's brain and all of these like scabrous old Jews just being ridiculous to each other makes me feel very at home and comfortable. Right. Even when it's not particularly funny, you know, or particularly uh, sharp. These last two seasons have fallen more in that camp. You know, you can sort of feel, and Jeff Schaefer, who worked on some of the best seasons of Curb and then went off and did The League, a show that we, I think, both loved and never had mm -hmm. anything to say about because it was just super funny, is the main co-pilot of the show again for the last few years. And, you know, he and Larry just come up with these ideas. And sometimes you feel these plots just being, like, hammered on top of each other to form some kind of a structure. But if it, the end result of it is John Hamm yelling to Albert Brooks that it's a Shonda hoarding all the Purell, I'm like, I, we're lucky. We're Dainu. We're lucky to live in this time. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's tough being a comedy man. It's tough. It's tough being a consistent comedy in a world where consistency is just underrated yeah. these days. It's yeah. not the goal. We don't watch the sixth episode of Mayor of Easttown and be like, well, it was really consistent well, I mean, and then it delivered the, just what the week before I, did. I think we were going to talk about shadows at some point, but I think even the reason that prompted us to, to, check yes. in on it was this sort of uh, run of headlines that was coming out about the show where it's like this incredibly important episode of what we do in the shadows that changes yes. everything. And I was like, oh my God, like what happens? Like, did, did We could it... have been like, hey, Cree Summer is leading a ex-vampire aerobics class and vomiting <laughs> drinking water into a trash bucket while pretending to look for a Wi-Fi printer. But, you know, that's that's not how podcasts work either. Um, so we'll be back on Sunday night doing Succession episode three. Thank you to Kaya McMullen for producing. And then I think, uh, yeah, we'll be back next Thursday. The usual program. Eternals you doubt? Is, I don't doubt. Eternals is uh, is only theaters, right? Yeah. 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 You and I, you and I, you and I to put on our Kingo cosplay and check it out. <laughs> Been hearing I'm, some interesting things about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, um, ooh, I'm excited. All right. Uh, thank you to everybody for listening. We'll be back on Sunday night. Take care. <laughs> 